morning. Good morning. I'm Felicia King, and you're listening to Breakfast Bites. Today's show, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that are faced by people who actually try to provide you technology security. And uh, it's helpful for you to understand some of these challenges, because I think as a business decision maker, it can influence uh, who your vendors are in terms of maybe who does your website hosting, who does your website development, maybe uh, who does application development for you and what sort of guidelines and requirements you give them when they are uh, doing those configurations for you. And so this is going to be a show that is uh, fairly technical, but I'm also going to relate it to the things that a business decision maker needs to know. So let's get started. Let's first establish some facts such as uh, Google has, you know, email services, they have file hosting services, they have this Google Drive thing. Um, They also have like virtual machine hosting services. They host things like Uh, I think you can get like Docker instances and some Kubernetes instances and, you know, stuff like that from them too, you know, so it's not like, uh, it's not like it's just Google's owned stuff that is hosted on their environment. They're doing hosting for really anybody with the ability to pay Uh, and who agrees to their terms of services for use of their infrastructure. For example, if you wanted to host a website on Google's infrastructure, you can get a a dedicated virtual server for that, what they call a VPS, also known as a virtual private server. And, you know, sometimes things like that for hosting a website is a really good idea uh, because obviously it has, you know, redundant power, redundant internet, Lots and lots of you know, symmetrical throughput for internet connection to that resource. So that's really where the attractiveness comes from. And you can pay as you go, that, that type of a thing, which is attractive to a lot of people. So, you know, Google does hosting for other people's resources. That's a really key critical piece to understand here. And what's rather amusing is if you go out to a website called ipinfo.io, you can look up Google there and you will see their entire IP net block. In addition to that, you could just do a little search on the internet for something like IP addresses or FQDNs for Google. And Google actually has a number of technical articles where they indicate the methodology that you should utilize in order to extract what they call are their net blocks. So what is a net block? A net block is a range of IP addresses that represent the network IP space that is owned by that particular company. So because Google is doing hosting for other people's resources, then that has massive implications. So looking up this information on ipinfo.io, what it shows is that there are 73.5 million domains that are hosted on 
Google's ASN, okay, which is like their address space. 73.5 million domains. Now, how many of those domains are actually owned by Google? Well, clearly not the majority. Probably maybe 1% of those domains, and that might be a high number, actually. <laughs> okay. So most likely, the super vast majority of the 73.5 million domains that are hosted, that are associated with you know, hosting resources for those 73.5 million domains that are on Google's net blocks on their IP address space. These are resources that are not actually managed by Google from a content or security perspective. So this has, again, very far reaching and enormous implications. So let's drill down on this. From a network security perspective, the people who do your network security for you are always trying to protect you from the nasty things that are going to corrupt your environment, ransomware it, uh, breach it, and otherwise cause it to be dysfunctional and not available to your needs and you know things that would cause you need to call your cybersecurity insurance company. So when a technology like Google's infrastructure is involved in the resources that you require access to, eh, this becomes a bit problematic. So the people that use G Suite, for example, are in a vastly inferior position to the people that use Office 365. If we look at just two primary, you know, there's like two primary platforms out there for uh, core business functionality software. You know, one is Office 365 or another, otherwise known as M365 for Microsoft 365. The other one is G Suite for Google Suite. So if you were to look up on the internet, do just a little search for uh, Microsoft URLs and FQDNs and IP address spaces, Microsoft has actually done a very nice job of segmenting it all quite properly. So if you wanted to block access to the Teams infrastructure, you could do that because Microsoft has put their Teams infrastructure on FQDNs that are unique and separate to Teams. So there's a specific IP space that's associated with that. And there are also specific FQDNs, so fully qualified domain names. So an FQDN is like www.google.com or teams.microsoft.com. That's what an FQDN is. So an FQDN is, the way that you can think about it is it's really no different than um, a business name. So when you go to the telephone book and you look up a business name and you find in the telephone book, oh, hey, there's the phone number for that. Okay, well, that's what an FQDN does. The FQDN is a methodology to, for a, an organization to put a human-friendly name on a resource that they wish to host to make accessible. And that could be internally or externally accessible or both. 
Okay, so that's what an FQDN is. It's really just a human-friendly name locator of a resource. So when the backend infrastructure of that has been configured to make it so that you can go through door number A and have the business functionality of door number A while blocking access to door number two, well, good. That is a methodology that facilitates the ability to allow business functionality to continue while blocking access to things that the organization wishes to block. Okay, so it's a, it's a risk management approach that's very effective. Well, Google's entire infrastructure is antithetical to that. And I know that sounds like a really strong statement, but I'm going to back it up for you. Go take a look at one of the most widely utilized pieces of functionality that Google has. And that is the reCAPTCHA system. So Google has a system called reCAPTCHA. It is a technology that can be used in a variety of ways, but ultimately what it does is it is intending to ensure that only valid humans are the ones who are interacting with resources hosted on a website. So it is a way for the website developer to attempt to mitigate the risk of bots doing denial of service attacks and hack attempts against a website. Like for example, uh, the Wisconsin Department of Revenue actually uses reCAPTCHA, okay? So if you have a Wisconsin Department of Revenue account and you go to their website, and if reCAPTCHA is blocked or malfunctioning in any way on the network that you're accessing it from, then you will not be able to log in to their website. And you may not even know why you can't log in. So what can happen is you can put in your correct username and password, but you won't even see the reCAPTCHA box. So like from your perspective, you're using your computer and you, you're like, oh, there's nothing wrong here. I'm putting in my username and password and I know they're correct, but yet it keeps telling me bad password and it won't let me log on. Well, what's actually happening is that the reCAPTCHA content is not actually being displayed to you. So you end up calling up, you know, your IT folks and saying, you know, what the heck, I can't log into Department of Revenue website. And, you know, you're frustrated because you're trying to do your job. So the poor little IT department, you know, they're looking at this saying like, well, you know, we're trying to block the you know, nasty things. So let's go out to what Google has to say about this. And let's say they figure it out that it's reCAPTCHA that's getting blocked and that's why you can't log in because, uh, you know, reCAPTCHA is not really, it's not a multi-factor authentication mechanism. It is a mechanism for the website developer to try to make it harder for bots and automation to hack a website. Right? So it's a met method for you as a human being to verify that you are a human who is actually interacting with that website. That's the intent, at least. I'm not going to say that it always works that way. So, you know, IT, go, they figure out that this is a reCAPTCHA issue. They go out to Google's technical articles about reCAPTCHA. And then their brains melt out. <laughs> 
the reason that their brains melt out is because Google in their infinite idiocy, maybe it's their infinite, you know, self-centeredness and lack of care for anyone else's needs. I think maybe they've just got a perspective that Google is the center of existence on this planet. So their article about this says, oh, well, reCAPTCHA is hosted on our Google Net blocks. Therefore, if you want reCAPTCHA to work, you need to whitelist the Google Net blocks. Okay. Now, I said before that the Google Net blocks is hosting resources for 73.5 million domains, right? That's clearly a heck of a lot more than just the Google reCAPTCHA resources. So what Google is saying in effect is that in order to make reCAPTCHA work, they want you to completely blow a hole the size of the Western half of the hemisphere through your network layer security because they are in effect telling IT security specialists to whitelist the IP address space for 73 and a half million domains that have nothing to do with reCAPTCHA. <laughs> like, like, like at this point in time, this is where your head detaches from your shoulders and it, you know, spins around and you're just like, you know, your mind is boggled because there's really not a portion of my thought process that says, you know, the people at Google are idiots. No, I don't actually think that they're idiots. No, I just think that they have intentionally structured their infrastructure in this way. They literally want to cause every network security specialist in the entire world to whitelist their entire net block. Because this is literally what their articles, their guidance on how to ensure that reCAPTCHA works. This is literally what their articles say. Now, if they had courtesy for other humans, and if they wanted to facilitate network security, what they would do and what they would have done from the very beginning of how they invented reCAPTCHA was that they would have put it on an FQDN that was associated with only reCAPTCHA resources. And they would only do the hosting for reCAPTCHA that way. So what they would have done is made an FQDN, something like reCAPTCHA.google.com. <laughs> okay, so in that context, if you wanted to make reCAPTCHA work, and you wanted to block all kinds of other nasty things that are hosted on Google's infrastructure, you could just say, well, sure, I'm going to allow computers to access reCAPTCHA.google.com and everything will be ducky and wonderful. Okay. Except, see, Google didn't do it that way. Now, if you turn and take a look at Microsoft, Microsoft has their URLs and IP address ranges publicly listed and regularly updated like their last update to this 
article was February 1st, 2023. Whopping two days ago, two, three days ago here. Okay. So, um, you know, Microsoft understands that people are going to need to have granular security access controls to resources. So what they've done is said, oh, um, you know, if you want to have access to Teams or you want to have, you know, Akamai or whatever the heck it is, here are the FQDNs associated with that. So you can go into your network layer security appliance and you can say, okay, I'm going to allow access to these resources, but not these others. Now, I don't mean to make a supposition here that Microsoft is all super wonderful because they're not. Microsoft, even in their documentation, says that uh, there are certain resources that are on star.windows.net and that uh, you should whitelist those if it is your desire you know, to access those. Now, also, I will say in Microsoft's defense that they've gone a little bit more granular than that. Like they'll they'll talk about things that are streaming.mediaservices.windows.net. So they don't, or like keydelivery.mediaservices.windows.net. They're not just sitting around and saying, oh, whitelist all of windows.net. No, but there are other idiots that say that. So let's talk this through. What the heck is on windows.net? Well, this is kind of like uh, Google's recapture situation, where if you track that data, what you'll see is that a lot of even Google's own infrastructure, they have intermingled with user content. So you'll see that it'll be Google uh, user content will be uh, associated with the FQDNs associated with the traffic. And, you know, Google user content 3.google.com and various FQDNs like that. So Google user content is not separated from Google's own business company hosted infrastructure that are Google resources. Okay. Like that, that represent their company, not just resources that they're hosting for customers. So, but they've got it all intermixed. So you have really no ability to, at least no easy ability. There are some sneaky ways that a really high quality security architect can make these things happen. But 99% of people out there that are in the IT security space don't have those kinds of skills in my experience. And it's frustrating that these companies like Google and Microsoft have not facilitated uh, easy network layer security approaches by simply doing quality back-end resource infrastructure allocation where they are designing their infrastructure such that uh, you can make those differentiations. Okay, so back to the what the heck is Windows.net. Well, most of the resources that are hosted on Azure that are customer-owned resources, uh, which includes hackers, by the way, is going to be on Windows.net. So true story, there was a company that I was interacting with, and there was a time, this was before uh, enterprise app OAuth integrations were really 
a compatible thing by a lot of providers, you know, like Microsoft supported it, but there were still a lot of providers that hadn't gotten around to setting that up and making that work. So they were looking for like conditional access bypass via IPs. Now, conditional access bypass is not even something that you can do of via an FQDN. You know, it's not even that slick. You have to allocate IP addresses to it. So I was sitting there looking at these uh, logs and I was finding a couple IP addresses that were associated with the traffic that I had wanted to make work. And so I contacted the software as a service provider and said, hey, are the, are, you know, is your guys' Azure infrastructure, is it hosted on these IP addresses? So the complete raging ding dong that was the support person literally responded to me to whitelist all of Azure. I mean, this is just truly insane. It's insane to the level of saying, hey, um, yeah, you know, the size of North America, yeah, let's just drive a hole the size of North America through your security. So as a business decision maker, you really need to understand these types of things where the majority of IT security people or, you know, just IT support folks out there do not do this level of analysis like what I do. What they're doing is they are following the guidance and advice of the support personnel, whether it be from Google or Microsoft or some you know, third-party SaaS provider. So when they go and provide some guidance, this is, oh yeah, whitelist all of North America. More often than not, that is exactly what IT support does. Because most of the time, IT support is just trying to fulfill the closure of the support ticket that you have submitted to them. And most of the time, they don't have the security chops or the position to be able to push back and say, well, actually, no, that's not cool. Uh, in addition to that, if you as the business decision maker are someone who is not expressing the desire to do things correctly, uh, if instead there is urgency and emotion involved and oh, yeah, this is adversely impacting business, you know, so if there's no communication that is seeking to understand what the actual real problem is that's going on, then that is going to cause the IT support people to just drive holes through your security because of a lack of desire to understand what's actually going on there. So just realize that impatient, overly emotional, no seeking to understand high business decision makers, you know, your, your VIPs, executives, these types of people, they, they create an atmosphere that incentivizes IT to drive massive holes through security. Um, so this is one of the major reasons why I strongly recommend utilizing proper 
roles and responsibilities. And what that more often than not comes down to is anybody that has less job title than security architect really shouldn't be making those decisions. There's a huge difference in response from someone like myself who understands the implications of the decisions and who's able to effectively articulate to others the implications of these decisions. Huge difference between how somebody like me responds to those sorts of issues, you know, requests or those issues like, gee, this doesn't work. I can't get to it. Very different than somebody that doesn't have those technical traps and doesn't have the political clout to be able to go back to the business decision maker and say, you know, hey, look, we've looked at this and, you know, we can do this, but we can't do this other thing. And if you really want us to do this other thing, then you need to understand the, the real significant implications of that. Uh, the other thing is that oftentimes I'm able to find a solution that doesn't compromise security while still allowing the business functionality to work. And the solution that I found is one that I've invented. It's not, I'm not following a technical article that's provided by Google or Microsoft or anyone else. So that's a question you've got to ask. Who exactly is making those decisions? You know, do they have the skill set to be able to come up with those invented solutions on their own? You know, what methods are they using in order to even analyze the problem? There's a thing called over troubleshooting, and it's very, very, very dangerous. And over troubleshooting is literally where people that are doing IT support disable security. And I just saw this yesterday, in fact. Um, there's a, an organization that we support that has had some, some IT changes. And so um, some of the folks that were involved before are no longer involved, which is a good thing. And it was identified yesterday that uh, a standard baseline anti-malware policy that normally would have 40 objects in it had been neutered to the point where it only had six objects in it. And it was neutered by the person who used to manage that resource, right? So that is not a change that went through change control. That's not a change that went through any level of analysis. Yet, enormous adverse business impact. You know, why would you take a standard baseline default 40 object anti-malware policy and rip it down to six objects. Well, that's what's called over, over troubleshooting. That is a response from an unqualified individual with administrative access making that decision. And just for the record, that was nobody on my team that did that. We don't do stuff like that. But you as a business decision maker, you need to understand that that kind of stuff does go on. And so where you are probably more often than not looking for someone who's just going to get her done, you know, get her done, make it so that we don't have our business hampered. 
there is a medium, there is a balance that has to be achieved between protecting you while still allowing business functionality to function. And it is an art form. It is very difficult. And there's no user manual. There's no training manual for it. It's an art form that generally takes people 20 years to develop that skill set. So, you know, be very cautious about who you are selecting to do your network layer security management, as well as your just security posture management across the board. And also be realistic. If you're expecting support personnel that are not engineers and security architects to deliver that kind of outcome for you, that's not really a realistic expectation. You know, and it's also a total conflict with what their objective is in life. Support personnel's objective in life is to close that support ticket. Resolve the issue, close the support ticket. It is not their objective in life to do security posture management for you. Okay, well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you are a more informed business risk decision maker in the process.